Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. And she tells me this amazing thing, that she's innocent. And so I said, so you're innocent, and you pled guilty, and you've been sentenced to death. Yes. I went back to my first-year criminal law students and told them exactly what she told me. I said, there's this young woman, she's 21, she's sitting on death row, and she says she's innocent. You know, who wants to help me out? And four kids raised their hand. So the Innocence Project for me was born that night, sitting on my kitchen table, (laughs) going through the police reports. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. That was the voice of Justin Brooks, founder of the California Innocence Project. In our own work advocating for the wrongly convicted, we've gotten to know Justin Brooks quite well. But so often, when we meet up at Innocence Project events, we're talking about the urgent and tragic cases that need attention. We're focused on the wrongly convicted people like Marilyn Malero, whose cases fill the days, weeks, and years of lawyers like Justin Brooks. Today, we're looking at the other side of these injustices. We wanted to know what kind of person devotes themselves to this work and what kind of toll it takes. And there are few people as qualified as Justin Brooks to answer those questions. I am the child of two immigrants. My mother is a British school teacher. My father was an Australian tennis player. I was born in the Bronx in New York. I lived all over New York. My dad stopped playing tennis. He started teaching tennis and then became a school teacher as well. So I was raised mostly by two school teachers and we moved around a lot. In high school, I ended up in Puerto Rico and that was a life-changing thing for me. I, I found myself the only gringo in a Puerto Rican high school and I didn't speak any Spanish. Mm. It's now looking back 40 years ago, I realized how impactful that was on my life, how it changed the direction of my life in, in so many ways. It was the first time I really saw real poverty. I was in the United States, but sort of out of the United States, culturally and politically. A lot of ways, there was a lot of anti-American sentiment back then, late 70s. So I went through high school in Puerto Rico, and, and then I came back to the United States and went to college in Philadelphia. And I graduated high school when I was 16, which it was very young to move thousands of miles away from home. I was a theater major for about really? two, well for about two weeks. <laughs> <Ow>. <laughs> and I got really scared. <laughs> you tried to do the Hamlet soliloquy to be or not to be, and it was that, not to be. <laughs> I, didn't get, I didn't even get to that point. Uh, I realized very quickly, like I had no safety net, and I grew up mm. not a super poor family, but you know we'd been on welfare a few times, and my parents had been unemployed off and on, and. I don't know what moved me to this, but I transferred to the business school from the theater school. Hmm. And the next thing you know, I'm a business major, which I did not enjoy at all. Hmm. And I decided to go to law school. And when I went to law school, and now again, I look back at this, I just don't even understand that person. But Hmm. uh, I wanted to be a corporate lawyer. Uh, I was, so you're like, what is the opposite of a theater major, a corporate, corporate lawyer? I know. Because we pulled in two very different directions. Where, where were you going to law school? Where are you living at this time? Uh, I went to Washington, D.C. Uh, I went to law school at American University. And, you know, I went there because it had been known as a big civil rights school. And mm. it was the, one of the first schools to have women. It was one of the first schools to have um, black college athletes. Uh, it had been a big school on the civil rights movement. So it was funny, but still I had this notion like I'm, I'm going to be a corporate lawyer and I'm not going to end up poor. And then my first year law professor, who I'm still in touch with, he took my class to a prison and I found myself faced with almost all black men in this D.C. prison and walked around and talked to them and they were asking me questions. And I said, I don't really have many answers. I'm a first year law student, but you know, I'll come back. And I went back to the prison. And while I was in law school, I started teaching the prison. 
Mm. And it just changed my entire life. It changed the whole direction of my life. It was jarring. And it was a time in DC when DC was the murder capital of the world and one of the most violent places you could be. And, and it was almost all African-American men just being warehoused in this facility in Virginia. I want to so, live there with you for a second. What was it about visiting that space and coming back into that space frequently that stuck with you? Was it the facilities? Was it the stories? Why did it impact you so strongly? So I think part of it was American University, the law school that I went to, was very white, very upper middle class in this beautiful neighborhood in Northwest Washington, DC. And it was just another world. Mm -hmm. It was shockingly different. And the sentences were so long. Mm -hmm. And most of the guys in there were, were lifers. And most of them were around my age. You know, there were a bunch of just young guys whose lives were over. And I guess maybe part of it felt like my life was beginning and I had a lot of opportunity. And all of a sudden I was in a really good situation where I was at a good law school. I was on my way to becoming a lawyer and I was seeing a lot of, of hopelessness. Hmm. So yeah. you walk into that scenario and you have a predisposition that I don't think everyone has. I think a lot of people look at a prison and they say, look at all those monsters. Look at the terrible things they must have done to be in here. They deserve it, right? I, why didn't you have that reaction? Is there anything that you can trace back? You know, what primed you to walk into that space and to think, whoa, these are human beings who are being treated brutally here, instead of thinking, boy, these are scary criminals. I, I'm glad I'm not here. Yeah, that's a great question. I think criminal defense attorneys by nature are not super judgmental people. I think to start with, it's the kind of people who are drawn to this work of not judging people on their worst day and their worst act. So I think that's always been part of my personality. I think there's a lot of hypocrisy that I see with people in terms of things they've done themselves, things their friends and family members have done. You know, like many people, I was a little adventurous in high school and certainly bent mm -hmm. at least a few laws. And my friends around me certainly <laughs> bent a few laws and family members and I've never liked the idea of throwing away people's lives over acts. And, and you also realize when you spend a little time in prison, it's not that. It's not filled with scary people. It's filled mostly with people with really sad stories. And the more I, I talked and then teaching a class, getting mm -hmm. to know them as my students, it was really life-changing. And so what it led me down to was prison work. By the time I was in my third year of law school, I decided that's what I wanted to do. I applied to a prison fellowship at Georgetown Law School, and I got it. And at that time, my wife, Heidi, was a uh, British preschool teacher. We started a family literacy program along with a professor at Georgetown where we would teach the inmates how to teach their children to read. Dope. And it was the coolest thing I'd ever been a part of. It was really hard because at the same time I was doing criminal defense work, I'd started my career as a criminal defense attorney. And as a criminal defense attorney, I was only dealing with the clients and I could kind of stick and move. Like you could tell me your problem and mm -hmm. I could come up with, okay, here's our game plan and then execute on it. But being exposed to the ruin of the lives of the guys in prison and the women in prison, we had a program for women as well, was heartbreaking. And, and the way the program worked is Heidi, my wife, would teach the classes on how to teach children how to read. And then because everyone in D.C. at that time was housed in this one facility, it was the one place in the United States where we could literally every weekend round up all the children in buses mm. and bring them to the prison. Cause it wasn't like California where they're hundreds of miles away from the city. They were all right there. And so we brought the children to the prison. We set up a big classroom in the school with toys and books, and we would have literacy activities. And 
the guys would put on plays for the kids. And then we'd have each kid, we'd give them a stack of books and then they'd have their father or their incarcerated mother read the books into the recorder and we'd send each kid home with a stack of books and a recorder Aww. and tapes hmm. of their parents. Wow. So every night before they went to bed, they could go through the book and hear their parents' voice wow. while they were getting read to, to try to break the cycle of illiteracy in the families, to try to create this connection between the parents and the children. Because I think what people had lost sight of is like, first of all, we shouldn't be throwing away the people in prison, but a lot of times when you're throwing away people in prison, you're throwing away their kids yeah. too. Yeah. And it, was, it, was, it was a heartbreaking, it was a very hard thing to be part of. In fact, I remember the exact moment when I sort of broke down and didn't know if I could do it anymore. Oh. And that was, I drove this kid out in my car and he was really young and eight or nine years old. And we get to the prison and his father comes up and says, oh, Mr. Brooks, I wanted to talk to you about my good time credit. And I knew he was going to get like five days good time credit. He had like a 50-year sentence. Wow. wow. And I just, he's looking at the kid. I can't even describe it, but he's looking at this kid. The kid's looking at him. And next thing I know, I'm just in the bathroom crying, like the devastation of this sweet kid and his dad's not coming home. So yeah, it was a great program. It's still going on. The family literacy programs and ours was the first one in the country to mm. to operate like that. And we got Radio Shack donated recorders and an organization called First Book donated the books. And the Barbara Bush Foundation turned us down because they uh. were into suburban literacy programs, not prison literacy programs. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I could throw some shade uh, throw on some Barbara shade. Bush here on your podcast. <laughs> Spill some tea. <laughs> <laughs> but that's where I got to, how I got to there, at least in my life. That's phase one, the D.C. years. That's beautiful. I feel like I had a very similar reaction to you when I was first exposed to prison well, after I was taken out of isolation, I was exposed to a lot of people who really, really struggling. I mean, mental illness, drug addiction, uh, PTSD, all of them had some kind of like horrendous PTSD. So it definitely was a scenario where I felt like I was immersed in just really high anxiety, really high desperation environment, which made me really anxious. But it's not like what you would think. It's not like a bunch of psychopaths. It's a lot of just people with really sad stories and really bad luck. I couldn't believe how unlucky all of these human beings were. And I didn't know that people could be that unlucky. I think that's the thing that really mm. stuck with me was I was like, wait, what do you mean no one ever taught you how to read? Like, oh, what do you mean your dad molested you? Like, just like back to back to back things where like all of the people around me had a story. And I was like, oh, I'm great. I mean, except that I'm in prison for something I didn't do. Like my parents love me and have supported me and no one's ever hurt me. And first of all, what am I doing here? But also, what is everyone else doing here? Like, this is insane. That was my reaction. And when you're telling the story about the literacy program, the thing that came to mind for me was just how many people in the prison as adults were not literate that I encountered. Like there were people who were doing elementary level reading because they just had been poor and shunted into work before they ever had a chance to really go to school and, and learn anything. So... Anyway, that's a tangent, but... Uh... Well, no, an important one. I mean, prison can be seen as this opportunity to get into this kind of program. And like, I think it would be very difficult to get the guys we had in our family literacy program, to get them to go to a family literacy program mm -hmm. in the community would be very difficult. Mm -hmm. It's just life would get in the way. But instead, the problem in this country is we see prison as an opportunity to punish people, not prison as an opportunity to make people more employable, more thoughtful, yeah. better citizens, all those kinds of things have kind of fallen by the wayside. And that's why we're left now with the largest prison system in the world, with the highest recidivism rate in the world, with incarcerating a higher percentage of our population than any country in the world. It's a failure because of its approach. And you're right, Amanda, it's like people would say, like, aren't you, aren't you afraid you know, working in the prison? And yeah. I wasn't like I, I came in. I've spent three years 
work in the DC prison and one of the most hardcore prisons in the United States. And I wasn't, yeah. that wasn't the emotion that I had. Yeah. It was sadness. It wasn't fear because people just have this weird idea that's just a, a bunch of sociopaths and psychopaths ready to shank you. And I would just see a bunch of people that made mistakes mm. and had, had difficulty getting from A to B to C in a legal way and, and hadn't been given those skills. You went from corporate lawyer to criminal defense to working in prisons. And it sounds like compassion for your average prisoner is kind of your starting place in this world. How do you end up getting into the innocence movement? How does that get on your radar? So after I'd been practicing in D.C. for a few years as a defense attorney and then doing this prison program, I was sort of seduced by academia. So I got offered this job in Michigan to teach at a law school. And, you know, my wife and I could buy a little Victorian house on the Michigan State campus and our kids could walk to school and go to a public mm. school. And they said, let's try that out for a little while and see how it goes. But I literally only lasted six months. As <laughs> you lasted longer in prison. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did. I lasted six months as a regular law professor. And then I heard about this woman on death row um, in Illinois. And I was a very, still a very young lawyer. I was 28 years old. And this article I read said she was sentenced to death on a plea bargain. And it just made no sense to me. And, and maybe because I spent my high school years in Puerto Rico, that had an impact that she was a young Puerto Rican woman. And I went out and I set up an appointment to meet with her on death row. And I find this woman who looks a lot like all the girls in my high school. Hmm. And she tells me this amazing thing that she's innocent. Hmm. And so I said, so you're innocent and you play guilty and you've been sentenced to death. Yes. And that was a, a moment again that, you know, my first visit to a prison changed my life. And that visit with Marilyn Malero completely upended my life. I went back to my first year criminal law students and told them exactly what she told me. I said, there's this young woman, she's, she's 21, she's sitting on death row, and she says she's innocent. You know, who wants to help me out? And four kids raised their hand. So the Innocence Project for me was born that night, sitting on my kitchen table, going through the police reports and getting as much information about the case together. And then that weekend, I piled them all into my Jeep and we drove to Chicago and we went to Humboldt Park where the shooting happened. And I realized right away that there was a major problem with her case. And that was there was only one eyewitness and she claimed she saw the shooting from her apartment building and the shooting happened in front of a bathroom in the park. And when I stood in front of her apartment building, I couldn't even see the bathroom, mm. let alone see someone who was standing mm. in front of it. It happened at midnight. There was no lighting. And when I measured it off, it was more than 400 feet away. So she claimed she saw this other woman hand my client the gun who shot this guy. And it literally was equivalent to standing behind the end zone in a football stadium with the lights out and saying, I saw someone hand someone a hot dog behind the opposite end zone. So I knew that she was lying. I didn't know why. Hmm. But when I finally tracked her down, I found out, surprise, surprise, the one person looking out their window in the city of Chicago who saw the shooting was the girlfriend of the victim. Ah. And that's not on any police reports. That wasn't disclosed. Unfortunately, my client got a very bad lawyer. And in fact, it's the first chapter of my new book, You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent. The first chapter is you hired the wrong lawyer. Yeah. And she got a lawyer who didn't go to the crime scene, didn't do any investigation, had never handled a death case, and then pled her out. So the case went up on appeal to the Illinois Supreme Court. And the Illinois Supreme Court were willing to reverse her sentence because he was not only incompetent in investigation and not only didn't put on a trial because he pled her out, when it went to sentencing, he didn't introduce any evidence. He just literally said, well, she's young and doesn't have priors. And a death sentence is usually a very lengthy procedure where you introduce family histories, mm. history of alcohol, drug use, head injuries. You bring in people to testify on their behalf. Right. You can't do any of that. Wow. So they, they were willing to reverse 
the sentence, but they weren't willing to allow her to withdraw her guilty plea. Hmm. So then it was remanded back to the trial court, and then I did a new sentencing in front of a jury, a new jury. I went to Puerto Rico, I investigated her family history, I brought in mitigation specialists, I brought in therapists, and she had a lot of stuff to put on the table. And then I, you know, begged the jury not to sentence her to death. But they only had two choices, sentence her to life or sentence her to death, because the plea was still on the table. Brooks was successful, and that day he saved Marilyn Malero from death row. But the victory was bittersweet. After I got her death sentence reversed, I remember vividly the night walking out to my car in a freezing cold Chicago night, I decided I was going to go home and tell my wife, um, I'm going to quit this tenured faculty position <laughs> and I'm going to go start an innocence project. <laughs> so at the point, I walked out and decided this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. She was still sentenced to life in prison. We could give you lots of reasons to support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener? Hi, this is Cannon. I'm a big supporter of the Labyrinths Patreon page because the work that these people do is really thoughtful and it's one of my favorite podcasts and Patreon accounts in the world. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson. When Justin Brooks first took on Marilyn Malero's case in the mid-90s, the innocence movement was in its infancy. And at that period of time, a lot of people had started being released from prison, and particularly from death row, because that was the beginning of a lot of the DNA of litigation. It was really only in 1993 that they started using DNA in these cases, and this is around 1995. Mm -hmm. And so a few people around the country had started doing innocence work, and Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld had started the Innocence Project in New York. And I met up with them, and at our first meeting of the Innocence Network, there were five of us sharing a pizza in Chicago, <laughs> talking about, hey, let's cooperate and work together. And so I was right there at the, the ground level of innocence work. I started a little death penalty clinic where I supervise students working on death cases in conjunction with the Illinois Public Defender's Office. How do you end up in California? Well, California didn't have a project. Let's start with that. California is the largest prison system in the United States and in the country with the largest prison system. California had it all. It had death penalty, three strikes, mandatory minimums. You know, it's Mm. It's the belly of the beast. <laughs> All the juicy horror, yeah. horrors. <laughs> exactly. That's where you want to be, right? <laughs> where the action is. The action was California. All right. I couldn't believe everybody wasn't in California. Then it's not such a bad place to live either. And, and Michigan and Chicago winters are yeah. absolutely terrible. So you didn't have any personal ties there? I also have family in San Diego, mm. which is why San Diego. San Diego wouldn't have been my first choice in terms of where to put the project. It would have been Los Angeles if I want to really be in the belly of the beast. But I have a couple of siblings that had moved out here to San Diego. And Can you give me a, um, a snapshot of what the California Innocence Project looked like in that first year? Well, what did it look like in the beginning? So it was me and a halftime assistant. And then I got another professor to sign on to work with it. But he had kind of a full-time job, so he wasn't full-time devoted to it. And so I first didn't know where we were going to get cases from, naively. <laughs> uh, where's the work going to come from? And then the LA Times did an editorial that was entitled, Welcome Justin Brooks to California. And then hmm. said, this guy, Justin Brooks, is starting an innocence project in San Diego. And the mail has not stopped since then. So the first few years, I was just digging through boxes of mail sitting on a floor every day 
looking for cases and trying to figure out a case management system and how I was going to triage all this stuff. And, so and making it I, up as you go along, like there's no rule book for this, right? Totally making it up as I go along, making up a training manual, making up policies and procedures, ethical guidelines. Um, every time I, I had this waiver I created to try get lawyers to tell me about the case and to turn over documents to me. Every single lawyer I sent it to had edits. Like I, I must have changed <laughs> that document a hundred times. And they're like, I, I'm telling you. And now, now it literally says. I don't just have permission to have these documents. My client is directing you to immediately turn over the file. You know, it had to be stuff like that with lawyers. Wow. So figuring out the system took like two or three years. And so there were no wins those first couple of years. It was just getting out to prisons, meeting with people. Then, then the other problem I had is people could walk into the law school where my office was and just walk into my office. <laughs> and so I just had people showing up with 10 boxes of their kid's case. And they were, of course, parents like your parents, Amanda, which I'm sure would have done the same thing. And then the next thing you know, I, I, six hours are sitting there talking to them because I'm mm -hmm. not going to kick parents out of my office who are there crying with their kid's case. But of course, parents are like the worst referral for innocence cases because I would do anything to get my kid out of prison. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the greatest case in the world. So a lot of it was just figuring that out, figuring out the structure. And then, you know, I, I had to raise money. And very fortunately, through a very embarrassing situation, I stumbled upon a source of the first big chunk of money I had to be able to hire people. I was at a cocktail party. I meet this woman who's a public defender who says, I'd love to volunteer for you. And I said, great. And she said, yeah, my husband would love to help out too. And I said, what does he do? And she said, oh, he's a musician. And I said, oh, I'm a musician too. And I start bragging about my little coffee house gigs. And uh, I said, is he in a band? She said, yeah, he's in a band. He also does solo stuff. And I was like, well, what, what's the band? She said, oh, it's, it's a Southern California band. So I'm like, what's the name of the band? He says, oh, the Eagles. <laughs> so I said, please don't tell me your husband's Joe Walsh. He's like my favorite guitarist of all time. And I can actually feel, my wife always says I never get embarrassed by anything, which I don't. But I had that sensation. It was unusual. I didn't know really one had time. That kind of heat on your neck and yeah. coming over your head. Yes. Thing. But you know, I experienced that. I'm like, please. She's like, yes, I'm Denise Walsh. It's Joe Walsh, is my husband. So I became friends with them, and the Eagles donated, did a concert for us, donated a big chunk of money, and it really kickstarted the project. So if Joe Walsh or his friends are out there listening now, Joe Walsh was a huge part of us getting this thing going. And then I just have spent the last 23 years raising money, working on cases, and also changing the law in California, which we've been successful in getting a lot of laws changed. It started with preservation of evidence because there was no preservation of evidence law in California. And so with most of the cases we looked at, there was no, regardless of how good the DNA science is, there was never any evidence yeah. to test. Because until then, 20 years ago, they just threw everything out after a trial. And so we started with that, and then we got into uh, laws for rights of access to DNA testing. And then we got into issues like compensating people who are wrongfully incarcerated. Ultimately, we've been involved in changing the evidence standard in California. Most recently, we got the identification standards changed in California. So I've, I, I literally wrote our three missions on a napkin 23 years ago, which was get innocent people out of prison, train law students to be excellent lawyers, and change the law and policy and procedures to diminish the number of wrongful convictions. And that's why I've been focusing on for all those years. And we've got 36 innocent people out of prison. We've been involved in writing at least a dozen laws. And I've trained hundreds, maybe now thousands. Hmm of law students, undergrads. We've had very few short timers. I think three or four years was maybe the shortest. And again, that's not a short amount of time, Amanda. And then the longest, Mike Hanline, who did 36 years in prison. Wow. And I say the average in our office is 15 to 20. Yeah. And it's far too long. Sadly, it takes years and sometimes decades of dedicated work to free an innocent person from prison. 
There are just so many procedural roadblocks, even when the evidence of innocence is incredibly strong from the beginning. And while the innocence lawyers work themselves ragged, the human toll keeps rising. Those 36 exonerations the California Innocence Project has won total more than 570 years of wrongful incarceration. But it's not just the wrongly convicted. Living day in, day out with these tragic cases also takes a toll on the lawyers and advocates. The burnout in this work is tremendous. I'm now at the point of, and I realized this at the last conference, I am the longest serving Innocence Project director in the world. Nobody has oh, wow. actually done this longer than me. And I've seen a lot of good people fall along the wayside of getting burned out on this stuff because there's a lot of secondary trauma and it's tough work. So San Diego was a good choice because I'm out here kind of at the end of the earth and I can dip in and dip out. And I, so I, most of my cases are in L.A., Mm. but I don't live there, and I think that's a healthy thing. That's a nice mm. boundary. Can you talk more about the secondary trauma stuff that you've either yourself experienced or you've seen in your colleagues? Yeah, we talk about it a lot in my office. I'm very lucky. I've got an amazing team. I've got eight lawyers in my office that are all my former students, and I've been able to train and see grow into amazing lawyers. And because of this work, the kind of people who are drawn to it are not the kind of people who don't deeply care about their clients mm -hmm. when they're locked up and when they're out. Mm -hmm. I mean, our, our clients become, you know, our friends and part of our family and we want to look out for them and they struggle with, with everything when they get out. And no matter how much support they have from family and no matter how much compensation they get, if they're lucky enough to get it, it doesn't make it all go away. And, and looking at you, Amanda, and saying these words just seems ridiculous. So <laughs> I'm, I'm saying this for the benefit of everyone who's listening. It is not you. <laughs> but it just doesn't doesn't go away. So that connection and, and our clients trust us more than they trust other people because we were the first lawyers who said, we're going to do this for you and we're going to do it for no money. And we come through for them. And some of our clients, like my guy, Horace Roberts, who's just such a sweet man. One of the saddest things was every year when I went to visit him at Christmas, and I would make sure I got out to see all our clients at Christmas time, I'd see my name and Mike Symantrick, the other lawyer in my office working on his case, our two names on his visiting sheet. And I'd go back the next year, and that was it. Wow. We were the only people who visit him for 20 years. And so... That connection, that lifeline is real for them and it's real for us. It's like having a whole bunch of friends who are going through like severe yeah. psychological stuff and just very practical stuff. Like Mike Handline gets out of prison and he's in his 70s and he can't get his social security benefits because he didn't sign up for him when he was 64 and the social security office doesn't understand why. And he's saying, because I was <laughs> locked in prison, I couldn't get down here. So they have all these practical problems that we try to work through with them and then the psychological issues. And there's just no way not to pick that stuff up and have it impact your own life. And I think mm. it, it can positively impact your life in the sense of it gives you perspective. It makes you happy about your own life and all the gifts you've been given. But it also can have very dark effects on the way you think. Something about Raquel Cohen She's our arson expert, and she's got two young girls. And, you know, she had to work on this case, this Joanne Parks case, for a number of years where these children were burned to death in this house. And she got very close to the client. And just as a mother and spending all her time working on that case and thinking there's just no way it wasn't going to impact her negatively. Yeah. And, and it has. Mm -hmm. So I, I preach to them all the time about you got to separate yourself. You can't be solving all the problems for our clients. We're not social workers. We're lawyers. But then I do things like, you know, move Brian Banks into my house. I'm <laughs> living with my family. <laughs> so, <laughs> Wait, is say, he like, there right now? <laughs> no, no, he's not living here now. After he was exonerated oh, you know, for I a period of time, he lived at our house. Because so I thought like, he was married and had a kid already. Yeah, yes, he's, he's doing, doing our, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> In 2002, 17-year-old Brian Banks was a star football player being scouted by recruiters. 
and many thought he was destined for the NFL. But after a consensual sexual encounter with a high school acquaintance, he was accused of kidnapping and rape. It was her word against his, and Banks was facing 41 years to life. He took a plea deal for five years with a lifetime on the sex offender registry, ending his football career overnight. The girl won a settlement from the school district for $1.5 million. But Brian wasn't giving up on his innocence even after he got out. He contacted Justin Brooks and the California Innocence Project, and eventually he was able to get a recording of the girl recanting her statements, acknowledging she fabricated the whole story. The California Innocence Project brought his case to the Los Angeles DA, who finally, a decade after his conviction, overturned it and cleared Brian's name. The tragedy Brian went through is a serious one, and the fight he and the CIP lawyers mounted in his defense is inspiring. So when Brian's story was adapted for a film called Brian Banks, with Greg Kinnear playing Justin Brooks, those were understandably the dominant notes, solemn and inspiring. That's often the way innocence work is portrayed in the media, for the stakes are life and death. But as anyone who's worked a job that deals with tragedy and trauma knows, for your own sanity, you have to find a way to blow off some steam. If there was a sitcom about the California Innocence Project, <laughs> what would be the Emmy-winning episode? You know, What vignette in, in this work that you've done is, is the most fun, humorous, that's an awesome That's question. a great way to ask that question, by the way. If, you're, if your life was a sitcom, what is the Emmy <laughs> award-winning episode? <laughs> uh, you know, I think it would probably be, which we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of this, it was the March Across California. So I had this crazy idea 11 years ago, I guess it is now, to get attention to our clemency petitions that we'd filed in front of the governor that I would walk from San Diego to Sacramento to get the governor's attention. And I would send out press releases and shout and yell at every community center and college and public space I could. And then Mike Samanchik and Alyssa Biracle volunteered to do it with me. And the three of us walked across California in 51 days, hmm. camping the whole way. And it was a full range of emotions from incredibly dramatic and sad and meeting up with families to just ridiculously goofy activities that happen when you spend 51 days with someone. I mean, you start to lose a little bit of your mind, um, <laughs> sticking feathers in our hair and hanging snake skin that we find on the highway around our necks and, <laughs> and then mike and i started coding banana peels we had like five different numbers as we code for how how long they'd been on the road <laughs> it's just really stupid humor uh so i rarely think of what we do as situation comedy but i do feel like you were in a tv show or in a movie a lot of the time the other thing i'd say is we did have hoppity hop gladiator wars in our office which are i i hope that our head of the building is not listening <laughs> because it was extremely dangerous do you guys remember hoppity hops no no so what hoppity is that? hops were like those big balls that you would bounce on and hold oh, the handle yeah, oh yeah totally so i saw an ad for adult size hoppity hops i'm like oh we gotta have those in our office and so we started basically jousting with them going down Amazing. our hallway as fast as you could right at another person and then knocking them off their hoppity hop. And so we do do some things to blow off steam sometimes. Yes, I'd say I think so. you have to. <laughs> it's not very lawyerly, but we're not very lawyerly in a lot of ways. We're lawyerly when it counts, when we're in the courtroom. Other than that, we try to not be that lawyerly. I think you're selling it. You're selling it. You're making it sound like it's something that is possible to do. <laughs> it is possible. Otherwise, you guys wouldn't hang out with me ever. Yeah. <laughs> Did any of that kind of stuff make it into the Greg Kinnear version of you? <laughs> the Greg Kinnear version of me, however much I loved it and loved Greg Kinnear, was a little harsher, I think, than I am. Mm. And I had an argument with the director about it during the movie because there's a scene in the movie where I'm saying to Brian, a guy who was in prison for you know six years for something he didn't do, saying, hey, a lot of my clients would love a day trip to San Diego. I can't take your case. 
And I was just really flip with him and sort of blowing him off. And mm. certainly it's true. I have blown off a lot of people in my career because you can only represent a fraction of people in cases, but I would never be like that with someone who'd been wrongfully incarcerated. And the director said, well, your character has to evolve during the movie. And I said, I didn't evolve. Like, this wasn't my first case. There was no evolution in me. Uh, and so I think Greg nailed it in a lot of ways, but he was forced into being harsh Justin Brooks early on mm. in the movie. Just a meanie. Yeah. He, he never rides a hoppity hop. He never rides a hoppity hop. I should have gotten that into the script. He's got See, his... if you Does guys he play guitar? Around, I begged Greg to allow me to teach him three chords. You'll notice when you watch the movie, there's not a lot of close-ups on his hand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Banks' case was one of the big wins for the California Innocence Project. And at the time, it was a stark contrast to the case that spurred Justin Brooks into innocence work in the first place, that of Marilyn Malero. After the initial success in getting her death sentence reversed, Brooks tried to overturn her conviction and get her released, but with no success. And as the years stretched on, the case came to haunt him. It even made it into Greg Kinnear's mouth in the Brian Banks film. I carry three pictures in my wallet. My, uh, my wife, my kids, and uh, that one right there. My longest standing client, Marilyn Malero. One day I'm looking through the newspaper and I see that Marilyn gets the death penalty on a plea bargain. So I look into it, find a couple witnesses, I find a mountain of evidence, and I lose 18 years with new evidence. Marilyn's still behind bars. She's the reason I started the CIP, and I'm not giving up until she's free. That's one thing the film gets absolutely right about this work and about Justin Brooks. I don't know what more to say about it, except for anyone who's been with someone who's gone through really hard stuff and they're people they really care about is going to pick some of that stuff up. And I'm, I'm sure Christopher has to a certain extent of, of helping you process through oh, yeah. a lot of stuff. And I'm sure it's been a lot of dark moments that, yeah. that, that you help her through. 100%. And I'm also thinking, like, is there any support for people in your there's no like no official support group. There, you know what? Of course there's not because there's not really an official support group for exonerees either. <laughs> mm, <laughs> but I'm just thinking right. like we have a friend who is um, battling cancer. Mm. And even when I was in prison, I thought about that. Like, like that was one of the tricks that I did to do gratitude meditations. Like one of the things that I thought about when I was in prison was, well, I'm trapped in this prison, but at least I'm not trapped in my body. Like at least my body's not killing me. And I could imagine lots and lots of people who are dealing with things like cancer or some other horrendous disease, and also they don't deserve it. Also, they are innocent people who are just unlucky. And there's support groups for people who mm -hmm. are going through stuff like that. Have you ever thought about building bridges between those kinds of support groups because there may be resonance. I don't know. This is, like I'm throwing another project at you. Anonymous. <laughs> Criminal Defense Attorneys Anonymous. Right? I guess we kind of created it in our own sense. I think the conferences that we yeah. did for a while were like that. And I would see people come to them that worked alone. Mm. And I think they needed it a lot more than my team. My team is very close, very tight. I don't think I, I, I know I couldn't have done this work alone for this many years as I've done it. There's no way I could have processed it all. Everyone sees the wins. You know, you see the wins, we're walking out, hands in the air. And yeah, yeah, yeah. But they don't see the losses. And when we have a loss, everyone starts crying in my office. We all meet out on the couch and talk it through. And then people go back to their offices and then one by one, they all go home. And then we come in the next day and pick it up and keep going because we just don't give up on cases and there's always another option that we kind of think through and then it pushes us. But because I have a team, we are a support group. And, mm. you know, people always say like, oh, my office is, we're like family. And most of the time we're like, you're, you're really not. But, you know, we're there at everybody's weddings and everyone's births and everyone's funerals and family members. Mm. And, you know, one of our lawyers right now is going through a horrible situation where her father died. And, you know, everybody flies out for the funeral. And this kind of work does really bond you together in a unique way because it's really unique work. And it really does feel like 
us against the world. And again, yeah. saying yeah. that to you, Amanda, is crazy because <laughs> I know you felt like it was you against the entire uh, universe. Can, but it can does you, that this work does make you feel like that. How could you not when the system is so stacked against you and your clients? That was especially true of Justin Brooks' very first client, Marilyn Malero. She'd been convicted in 1992, and as the decades passed, Brooks and the CIP never gave up on her case, not while she was still unjustly trapped in a cell. And that was true until just a few months ago, when her sentence was finally reversed. And I started that case when I was 29 years old. I finished it at the age of 57. We know a few people in the innocence world at this point. Yes, I, that's <laughs> <laughs> um, I think you may be the person who maybe has your fingers in the most pudding. Is that? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> he knows what I'm talking about. I do know. <laughs> what am I talking I'm about? All, I'm all over this movement. Yeah, you're everywhere. I, what? Like, what are you? Where are you? Well, I just got back from Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. which is uh, mm -hmm. where I started an Innocence Project. <laughs> so I was training the new students for the Puerto Rican Innocence Project Clinic. Mm -hmm. When I, I started the California Innocence Project and was working in California, but, you know, I, I, I grew up, you know, learned Spanish, going to high school in Puerto Rico, and I live on the border of Mexico. And so that kind of started uh, the last 20 years. I've been training lawyers in Latin America, and then that led to me starting Innocence Projects in Latin America. So I now work with 30 Innocence Projects in Latin America and have monthly meetings with them and conferences with them. Maybe it's because my dad is Australian, my mother's British, and I grew up in Latin America that I don't have any strong sense of the United States is kind of the mm -hmm. place you got to be and the place you got to work. And it's the only place in the world. I don't have any of that. If someone's in prison in India and they're innocent or in California, it makes no difference to me. So I've gotten involved in international cases. I've, I work in Europe every summer, helping getting those projects going. I like you guys and go to European conferences. I've been out to Japan for their projects. And you know, what's so awesome about it is like this thing started with a few people hanging out in Chicago and now it's a global movement. And I've been actually able to be there from the beginning. And, you know, when we go to that conference every year and, and you guys have seen a growth in the period of time mm -hmm. you've gone, I mean, 2014 was the first time mm -hmm. that I went, when I yeah. met you guys. Yeah. And, you know, it's grown since then. But like it's gone for me from five people sitting in a living room to 1,200 people at a conference every year mm -hmm. that are all doing this work around the world. So how, how could I resist being involved in all the different <laughs> stuff going on? It's all interesting to me. Yeah. The thing that sort of blows me away is how do you even keep track of how to overturn wrongful convictions in all of these different places that all have different laws and procedures, like how do you keep track of everything? Yeah, first of all, innocence work is so basic in the idea of the legal issues are kind of the tool to get to the end zone, but really what it's all about is evidence of factual innocence, right? And, and that's the same whether you're on trial in Italy or you're on trial in the United States or anywhere else. It's like, what is the evidence here? What's proven this person's guilty? What's proven they're innocent? And if we got enough evidence of innocence, I know there's always a way to the goalpost. And it may be a legal path, it may be a political path, but there's always a path. And I think I've just seen enough of those paths over my career that they've all started making sense to me. I mean, some of them, like your case is the first time I learned about this notion of, oh, if the defense chooses not to put on a case, then you can get a half sentence out of that. I think when I read your book was the first time I was, I was looking at like, yeah. what? Because that I haven't heard of anywhere. 
So yeah, every country has their different criminal procedures and processes. Like in Bolivia, they have this rule that the public defender can certify a case to go automatically to the Supreme Court. And mm. I remember sitting at a public defender office in Bolivia and they're saying, oh, we don't have habeas review. And I said, yeah, yeah, you really need that. And he says, yeah, but we got this thing where you know, I can certify a case and it gets automatic review wow. by the Supreme Court. And I'm just like, you got to be kidding me. That's way better <laughs> yeah, it's than That's a golden have. ticket. Thank you very much. <laughs> so it's just you ask a lot of questions. I think it's it's like everything in life and what I teach my children is like, well, you don't know, just constantly ask questions and, and figure it out. But don't pretend you know anything. And I've done that my whole career. I like lawyers are not scientists. So I'm always asking questions. I'm not an expert in science. I've learned a lot over the years, but I'm not an expert. And then the same thing with criminal procedure. I mean, I teach criminal procedure. I've taught it for decades, but every country is a little bit different. And that fascinates me. And if I ask the right questions, usually within a half hour, I can pretty mm -hmm. much figure out what's the path going to be to get this case where we need to get it. Can we jump into his ominous sounding book? <laughs> sure. I mean, it's got I got an ominous me. cover too. And <laughs> why did you decide to add a book to your many things you have to do? Well, I guess I felt there's so much academic stuff on this topic of wrongful convictions, and in fact, I'm major contributor to that. I've written a number of law review articles. I wrote the still only law school casebook devoted to the topic of wrongful convictions. But I wanted to write something that people could relate to, and people could finally maybe understand the fact that this can happen to anyone. And so I didn't want to write a law book. I wanted to write in a straightforward way, using what I know from my life experience, what I know from the cases I've seen, and what is out there in the research that shows that this is not a thing that you can comfortably just look the other way from. Because I've just seen over and over again, people not caring about wrongful convictions until it happens to them or a family member or a friend and not really understanding it. So you can see right away from the book chapters and the way I've entitled them that I was looking to write a book for everyone. You know, my chapter on bad identifications is called, you look like other people in the world. You know, like that is basically what it comes down to. You get wrongfully convicted if you sort of look like other people in the world. And my chapter on false confessions where I highlight your cases you don't like being kept up all night and being yelled at. You know, it, it's that basic. Like yeah. there's sophisticated stuff we can talk about in the science of wrongful convictions and how false confessions happen. And there's all that. And I put a lot of that stuff in the book to back it up. But a lot of it is just at the root of, you know, I've got a chapter called Someone Lies About You. you yeah. Somebody tells <laughs> That'll a lie. That'll happen. And that's it. Your life is gone. Yeah. So people kid themselves. And then I look at some thematic things that I've noticed in my own work, like I've had so many cases where a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend come home and find their dead partner, and then they end up being wrongfully convicted. Mm. And it happened to Kim Long. It happened to Bill Richards. I found there's just tons of these cases. And it's basically because they can put you on the scene because there you are at your own home. Right. Which your DNA which is, is there. like you. Yeah. <laughs> and now they just got to find a motive. Now it's like we've got this person mm -hmm. on the scene and now we've got a motive. And that's enough to convict you. In your situation, they'd really go far and wide to find that motive and make up a lot of craziness. In other cases, it's just as simple as if it's a relationship, it's not that hard. There's always some crazy friend who wants to be in the drama who's saying, oh, yeah. she told me they were having problems. Mm -hmm. You'll always have that. We know that, you know, what is it, 40% of marriages end in divorce. So 40% of them, you're already there that there's going to be a lot of material to use. And so I just wanted people to understand this at a basic level and to, to be mm -hmm. less comfortable with the idea that they would never have to deal with this or think about it for themselves. And I even use it myself, I talk about in the book that I actually have a plan for my first day in prison because after the work I've been doing for three decades, I can't kid myself that I won't end up mm. in prison. I could. I mean, my first offense will be a trolley to Tijuana <laughs> and walking across the border. But if that doesn't work out, <laughs> my second one is first day on the yard. I'm getting all the shot callers together 
And I'm saying, I'm going to be your lawyer and your there lawyer you and your lawyer and your lawyer. And you keep all these other guys off. <laughs> yeah. See, you know, you know library. the hustle. <laughs> you know how to hustle. Good for you. Exactly right. Is it totally hopeless to think that by reading your book or by educating yourself about the, the causes of wrongful convictions that you might be a little better at avoiding it? Is there no, like, what are the healthy eating habits I can do to not get heart disease, you know? <laughs> Is there no corollary to that here? It's just other people lie about you. Like, you can't yeah, do anything about that. there's nothing you can do you know? about no, that. No, most of it there isn't. In fact, one chapter I've called, you know, you live in the country or you live in the city. Because <laughs> if you live in the country... I've found like there's terrible forensic work done. There's terrible police work. They don't know how to process a homicide scene. So everything's really sloppy. And you see that in the California deserts. If you live in the city, they're over-policed. You're more likely mm -hmm. to get caught up in a sting when you've got nothing to do with it. Certain neighborhoods are just regulated a certain way. So there's not a tremendous amount <laughs> that you can do about it. But I do have a message of hope in the book in the sense of with each chapter I talk about what are things we can do to diminish this from happening? You know, mm -hmm. in the first chapter, I talk about defense lawyering and how we can improve that and how we can get the quality of that up. I talk about how we could allocate more resources to those country police forces mm -hmm. in terms mm -hmm. of their training and we can change police practices in the inner city. You know, the mm -hmm. confession thing is the most depressing one, though, of them all. Yeah. And the, and the yeah. reason it depresses me is there are reforms that are so basic, so mm -hmm. simple, cost nothing, and they're still not doing them. Like, we are yeah. still fighting to record interrogations. When everyone on the planet is carrying around a sophisticated recording device in their pocket, and you still have people mm -hmm. saying, oh, it's too difficult, it's too complicated, we can't record. Too, too costly. Too costly. Yeah. They can't yeah. take their cell phone out and put it on the table and hit record. So that is very depressing. The the identification stuff, there's simple reforms to make better IDs. And we finally got a package passed in California. And the most basic one is you cannot have investigating officers who know who the suspect is involved in the identification procedures. They are horrible poker players. They always say something stupid. And even when they say nothing through the process, if the person says, oh, it kind of, it looks like number three, They'll say, good job. We got them. Yeah. yeah. Or and a nod we, or a like, okay. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Like, mm. yes. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and now they walk in the court, they point at number three, go 100% sure it's that guy. And yeah. the jury doesn't know that they were never 100% sure when the actual procedure occurred. So there's, there's basic things we can do to change. There's complicated things we can do to change. Oh, well, that's comforting. It's not just bad news, everyone. <laughs> no. <laughs> There's some good news. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I do not want to leave you in a place of depression. Although the last chapter was the hardest chapter to write of the book, um, and that is you're poor or a person of color. Mm. Um, mm. And I think what made that so complicated was I can directly point in so many of my cases, this is why you were wrongfully convicted, right? They they got this false confession that alleged you're wrongful convicted. They got this bad identification. They used this junk science, whatever it is. But the race and poverty stuff, which infects the entire system, is much more difficult to pinpoint mm. unless you take a 30,000-foot view of the system and look at the statistics, and they're yeah. shocking. Yeah. I read a... a, a project when I was writing the book where they did virtual reality and they had people watch trials with virtual reality and then they would change the race of the defendant and mm. they would get different verdicts from people oh and different God. sentences. So we just have to accept that people don't identify with people not from their own common backgrounds. They're more likely to convict people who don't look like them who don't seem like someone who'd be in their circle, in their family. And, you know, you guys see it every time we go to the conference every year, and you just see all these poor people of color who are locked up. I mean, it's the overwhelming majority yeah. of people in prison. And I didn't know how to start the chapter either, because here I am, an old white guy talking about race. And so I started it by talking about my first experience with white privilege. Hmm. And that experience was that when I was a kid in Puerto Rico, I was the only gringo in my high school. I was the only white kid. And we lived in a fairly poor neighborhood inland. And so every weekend, I would take a bus to the resort areas, and I would walk into the hotels, 
and I grab a towel by the pool and I would just lie by the pool all day and I'd eat free food hmm. and I'd play bingo and no one ever asked me any questions because they just figured he's <laughs> yeah. some kid, his parents must be here. Yeah. And then after doing that many, many times, I brought a friend from school who was a Puerto Rican kid. We lasted 10 minutes wow. before we were both thrown out. And, and it's 40 years later, I'm reflecting on that. And when I was a kid, I was just like, dude, you blew up my spot here. Like I had a good thing going. <laughs> and now I'm just like, that was my first white mm. privilege moment. And our system reflects that, particularly when we look at race of victims. Yeah. Mm. That when victims are white, and particularly when they're white women, you get a lot more pressure to solve a crime. Mm. And again, talking to you, Amanda, like, you know, it becomes a news story. Yeah. It becomes a thing. A prosecutor's got to close it. Everyone's emotionally vested in it. And that's just not true when people of color are victims. And uh, it's not as true when men are, are victims of crimes. We, we react differently. We react emotionally. Mm -hmm. And when we react emotionally to stuff, bad decisions get made. But I still have, I still have a lot of hope. I've seen improvements. I've been around long enough to see improvements. And somehow I'm still not cynical about human beings and our ability to change. Justin Brooks recently retired from his position as the director of the California Innocence Project, though he continues to teach and support innocence work in Latin America. His new book is called You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent, and you can find it wherever books are sold. If you want to support the organization he founded, check out californiainnocenceproject.org. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. You can find out more about our work and how to support us at knoxrobinson.com. And please leave us a five-star review and spread the word on social media. Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. This episode was written and produced by us with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. Captain's Log, Stardate 89361.5. We've encountered a fascinating alien civilization. The people of Patreon Prime are humanoid in appearance, but possess vastly greater degrees of nuance, compassion, and intelligence than any race we have so far encountered. But what is perhaps most striking is their generosity. Captain, the warp core is going critical. Warning. Divert all energy to patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. 